Welcome to the Reconstructing Healthcare Podcast, a show where we discuss what's wrong with healthcare and talk with innovative companies disrupting the health insurance marketplace. Join us as we explore strategies to help employers lower healthcare costs and build a better health plan. Now here's your host, Michael Maneri. Hello, this is Michael Maneri, and I want to welcome everyone to the Reconstructing Healthcare Podcast. Uh, today, our guest is Dave Chase, author and co-founder of The Health Rosetta. Dave, welcome. Great to have you on the show. Looking forward to the chat. Thanks for having me. You bet. So here's the game plan. What we seek to do here is challenge the status quo and educate our audience on non-traditional methods to lower their healthcare costs and improve value for their employees. Sound like something you'd like to help with? Right in my wheelhouse. Looking forward to it. Dave, to start us off, let's just talk a little bit about your background because I think it's unique. You're actually not the typical person we, we talk to on the show. You're an investor, you're an entrepreneur, and you're an author who's focused on healthcare. But I don't think your career started in healthcare. So, so tell us about where you started and how you got so focused on healthcare. Yeah, technically that's true. I started my career at what's now Accenture, and my first client was in financial services. But after that, almost all of my client activity at Accenture was in healthcare. Largely, it was you know implementing what we call today revenue cycle management systems inside a hospital. So you know, yep. now I'm kind of working to undo some of that that work, yep. you might say. And then I went over in kind of Microsoft's adolescence and started their healthcare uh, platform. Platform business. So that's a two to $3 billion business for them today. And then I had a pretty long detour away from healthcare. This thing called the internet had come along that I wanted to <laughs> right. get involved in. Re-entered as a entrepreneur. I've been doing startup stuff post-Microsoft. I left Microsoft, wow, I guess it's about 14 years ago now. And so in the intervening years, I did various startup stuff and then had a startup in healthcare called Avado that got acquired by WebMD in 2013. And then I worked through the integration. And it was through that that uh, I sort of really dug deeper into beyond just the technology. That's almost the least interesting part of what's going on in healthcare. And, uh, you know, healthcare is this weird industry, the only one that I know of where tech is used as an excuse for cost to go up and productivity to go down. So, you know, right. up is down, down is up. And so I kind of dug deeper and that kind of what led me to probably the topics we're going to talk about today. Awesome. You just released a new book. It's called The CEO's Guide to Restoring the American Dream, How to Deliver World-Class Healthcare to Your Employees at Half the Cost, which... Uh, I would imagine anyone who's listening to this is immediately going to be interested in. But the book, at, you know, at a very high level, and we'll get into it, you know, discusses a number of factors that contribute to higher healthcare costs and, and provides some very succinct steps for what employers can do to lower their costs. But let's start with the why. I mean, why did you feel compelled to write this book? What motivated you? Well, great question. Well, you know, I meet clinicians every week, and I don't know that there are smarter, more passionate people than nurses, doctors, and clinicians of all types who had a calling, you know, really most of them from a young age to care for us in our most vulnerable moments. And it's really a drag today. And I look into their eyes and it's evident that their passion has been beaten out of them in many, many cases. You know, doctors tell me they're spending two hours on soul-sucking bureaucracy for every hour with patients. And nurses tell me about how administrators are pressuring them to give patients more opiates so that they can remove any pain complaints due to patient satisfaction surveys, while at the same time getting pressured to power through their own back pain from moving patients. And, you know, it's no wonder there's record 
levels of burnout, even suicide. The highest rate of suicide of any profession right now is, is doctors. And you've seen a lot of them, they've kind of lost hope. And then I meet with the clinicians who've unshackled themselves from the failing system that's really crushing um, the souls of our caregivers. And you yeah. see the light back in their eyes and how they're fulfilling their calling. And you know, as one said, they're delivering twice the care at half the cost and 10 times the delight. And so... Um, really at the core of it was like, wow, we've got this huge dichotomy of what's not working, what is working. And, um, you know, it was really the day after the Michigan primary in the 2016 election, um, where it was a surprise that Bernie and Trump had won. And I took a step back and listened to it. And there was a, there was this NPR interview uh, with a Dartmouth economist, and they tried to talk about the narrative of, oh, it must be about trade and so on. And the economist said, you know, wage stagnation and decline is very, you know, has not been impacted hardly at all by that. Overwhelmingly, um, the driver of wage stagnation for 20 years has been healthcare costs, like 95% of it. Yep. Um, and so, you know, that really, you know, that's a, you know, one definition of economic depression is two or more years of income decline. So you've got a 20 year long economic depression, overwhelmingly healthcare created, um, and fortunately, there's solutions to it. And so that was really what pushed me towards uh, writing about it. Great. Well, <clears throat> I, I, um, I think it's great. I'm a learner. I'm, I'm constantly interested in, in learning you know, more about you know, what we can do and how to get better. And, um, and that's one of the things I loved about the book. Um, you know, even a lot of the things I was familiar with, but there's, there's a lot of things that, um, that were even enlightening to me and, and I think would be uh, enlightening to a lot of our audience. Um, and I, wa- I want to touch on a number of those things in the book um, for our audience. I mean, we do discuss um, a lot of the things um, such as misaligned incentives within the healthcare continuum, the, the waste in PPO networks and formularies. Um, but what, one of the things we, we really haven't spent a lot of time discussing is a topic which you bring up, which is this notion that a lot of the care re- we receive is unnecessary and not evidence-based medical care. So can you speak to this and just give our, our audience some examples? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty stunning. You know, British uh, Medical Journal uh, report on this in the last year that in the U.S., the third leading cause of death uh, is preventable medical mistakes. I mean, that's just shocking. Um, and, you know, one of the crazy stats that somebody shared is that it's 40 time, 47 times safer to jump out of a plane, presumably with a parachute, than to be admitted to a hospital. Um, you know, in chapter 12 in the book talks about the levels of misdiagnosis on complex, um, medical conditions, which drive the overwhelming cost picture, you know, mm-hmm. rates of misdiagnosis from 25% in oncology to 67% on, uh, spinal procedures. And then on the overtreatment front, um, uh, so, you know, of course on that, you know, you could have the best surgeon in the world, but if the dog diagnosis is wrong, it's the quality is zero or negative. Um, right. And then Shannon Brownlee, she wrote a book on overtreatment and boy, one of the stories that she tells is just, it's a, you know, punches you in the gut, you know, it was a 52 year old Ohio woman who came in, she'd started a new exercise regime, um, and basically tore a muscle in her chest um, mm-hmm. from that workout routine. But because we've so undermined primary care in this country, the only access she had was to go to the ER. And she went into the ER and you know, all the people were basically kind of doing their job, but the job has been organized. Um, 
poorly and everything is, is geared towards over testing, over imaging, over treatment. So she goes in, um, and the ER doc says, Oh yeah, well, certainly that's, you know, that's not, it's certainly not a heart attack. And cause it was on her left side, she thought, Oh, maybe I hear left side is a heart attack. Um, and, uh, they go, well, you know, we have this new imaging equipment. We can take a look, you know, just to be safe. And of course you can always find something when you image. And so like, well, you know, why don't we, um, you know, there's something in there, um, you know, probably nothing, but let's just, you know, send you to the, the cath lab, which should be renamed the cash lab. And they, they go through the catheterization in the process. They uh, perforate her aorta and then have to do a graft uh, that rejects. And, um, you know, literally in a month, she's having to get her heart replaced because she tore a muscle in a workout. I mean, it's just horrific. And everybody along that path, I mean, of course, somebody made him, you know, there was a, a little error there, but that's human, you know, error that you can't do anything about that. But along the way, you know, she tore a muscle and she ends up having to have her heart replaced. Forget the bill, you know, I mean, this is really pretty horrific, you know, what we're doing there. I mean, <clears throat> that's an awful story. But, um, you know, I, I think it's, it speaks to the notion that, uh, you know, we're, we're in this, this system where, um, you know, the, the answer is, is generally more care is always better and more care is usually, you know, high cost care. Yeah. Um, well, you know, Starbucks did this analysis with Virginia Mason, which is a high quality, you know, center in Seattle. And in Virginia Mason's words, to their credit, they found that 90% of the back surgeries they were doing didn't help at all. PT would have been more effective. Um, but, you know, everything was driving people towards that. Um, and that's just, you know, another example. I want to move on to a couple other topics in the book. In chapter seven of your book, you discuss fraud and abuse. And I think that the stat referenced there is that fraud and abuse may represent up to 10% of all healthcare spending, which I think is, it, is shock, shocking to me and I think would be surprising to most uh, because it's just not something you hear mentioned a lot. But one of the things that, that you discuss is that it's really easy to stop but most insurance carriers lack the financial incentive to do so. So can you expand on this? I mean, why is it easy to detect and why aren't insurance carriers doing anything to prevent it? Sure. Um, you know, I'd preface it with uh, most quote unquote insurance companies are really just claims processors. You know, they're, they're processing mm -hmm. somebody else's dollars that are at risk. You know, I think it's, you know, close to two thirds of employers are self-insured. And so that's a, a key driver here. It's, it's somebody else's money. And, you know, a lot of this, you know, it, it was a huge surprise to me. I, you know, I thought, oh, there's some bad actor doctors and, you know, Boca Raton or, you know, something like that. You know, we catch those, those bad guys, but this is much more, um, pervasive and sophisticated. And, you know, you, and once you connect the dots and you say, oh, you know, Anthem and Premier and others have had their, their systems hacks and providers, you've got 150 million American health records, um, and insurance information basically on for sale on the dark web. Um, it's the most valuable identity and it's, it lasts a lot longer than a credit card. And so when you take that and combine it with a provider ID and a tax ID, which are incredibly easy to get uh, for legitimate reasons. Uh, it basically becomes an ATM card for the bad, the bad guys. And I wouldn't have believed a lot of this stuff if it hadn't come out of the former HHS secretary's mouth, who you know educated me on a lot of this. And in terms of you know the the dynamic there, this HHS secretary, they had originally proposed their company that provides this fraud prevention service. Uh, they were thinking it would be like the ATM networks or the Visa networks where it was jointly owned by the insurance companies, but they got nowhere and they found out and kind of were pulled aside like, hey guys, 
they have no interest in stopping fraud. I mean, this is a guy who had access to the top levels of you know the biggest companies in the industry because of being an HHS secretary and one of the board members, the former Treasury secretary. And they said anything that provides upward premium pressure is a good thing, you know, and because uh, then they can say, oh, you know, trend is fourteen percent, we're heroes, it's only eleven percent, and so they they like that. And furthermore, they can you know collect thirty forty cents on the dollar if they you know recover any of the fraud. So there's a, a misaligned incentive. And the technology is basically the same. In fact, it's literally the same companies that have the algorithms that are applied in visa fraud protection that, you you know, no doubt you've experienced. You travel somewhere, or have some odd purchase, they stop it because, you know, yep. the bank is, yep. is at risk. It's basically the same algorithms. And, you know, to give you an example of the type of thing that's going on, there's a Fortune 250 company that... Um, you know, they uh, found that um, the in the six-year statutory period for ERISA, there were over half a million claims to the tune of um, nearly half a billion dollars, over $400 million, and they haven't even looked at pharma yet, pharma spend yet. And when you look at what were these clearly fraudulent claims, um, you know, it was claims that had been run 25 times, 50 times. Um, you know, each individual one could pass wow. the, the claim check. Or my favorite one was 42-year-old steel workers' uh, identity that had been stolen. This individual had had supposedly six circumcisions in six days from six doctors. Um, so I'm not a doctor, but I don't think that's possible. And I think I did code once upon a time. I think I could write the code to prevent that from getting paid. And so that really speaks to sort of how pervasive it is and how big it is. I was really shocked by how big it is. But there's actually it was an article in The Economist that talked about this back in 2014. And FBI and Accenture estimated at about $300 billion a year. So it's, it's not chump change. Uh, at all. And you imagine that Fortune 250 company, if they had that $400 million, you know, that would have prevented them from laying off a bunch of workers, which they'd had to do in the last 12 to 18 months. I think those are great examples. And, and just to give a personal one, we, we have a, a self-insured client who, um, you know, there were some member IDs um, that, um, let's just say, you know, it was a criminal organization was able to, uh, you know, um, get a hold of. They managed to get through um, I think it was over $10 million in, in fraudulent claims, a lot of them specialty drugs. You know, by the time the, the, the PBM you know, realized something was off, it was too late. I mean, and, yep. they, and they, they put, the, they, they put uh, you know, protective measures in place and very quickly um, they use those member IDs, you know, a different set of member IDs for a different you know, category of drugs. And so it's, it's very real. And, and unfortunately, um, you know, the, the anticipated recovery in this case, you know, you, you called it the chase and pay. Yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned thirty to forty percent. I, I doubt they'd even get ten percent. Yeah, you know, back. Yeah, so what I was saying, I was saying that the misincentive is that if the insurance company um, does recover money, they get paid thirty or forty cents on the dollar, and so that's that's part of the the misaligned incentive. They you know they let the bank get robbed, and then they get paid for you know recovering some of that. Um, yep. so yeah, they don't, they definitely don't recover 30 or 40% of it. It's that they get paid 30 or 40 cents on the dollar for what they recover. For an employer out there who is, is listening to this and taking this to heart and they're, and they're working with their TPA, you know, are there, are there payments? I think the word you use in the book is payment integrity solutions that can help monitor and, 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 you know, eliminate you know, this type of, of fraudulent activity. Are there companies out there right now that, um, 
an employer can work with and integrate with their TPA to be able to try to prevent some of this? Uh, yes, there are. I mean, the carriers have some stuff because you know they do have some of their dollar own dollars at risk. But they one of the limitations of it is uh, they're usually only looking at their own data. And one of the ways that you you know pick up these trends is looking across a lot of different sources, data points. And so you can establish patterns and, and get, you know, the algorithms can get very smart that way. There are companies, there's the company I mentioned that a former HHX secretary is the, the chairman of the board of. And, um, you know, I, I don't know if you put on your show notes, but, you know, I'm Chase Dave on just about everything, my Gmail, Twitter, you know, yep. I'm happy to connect, you know, you or anybody with them. If you'd like, I mean, I think there's a few players I haven't deeply, you know, tracked all the players, but I know they're, they're playing to win. They are integrating um, with TPAs and working with employers. And, uh, you know, I'm sure would be happy to, to explore that with, you know, whoever uh, wants to put that in. Yeah, no, we can we can uh, follow up after the, the interview here, and uh, you know maybe place some of these uh, companies in the show notes. Yeah, this this is uh, the next question here. This is part of the book that I um, actually laughed, you know, when I read the the title of this chapter. Uh, it was about workplace wellness, and I think how it was hazardous for your health. And so you guys you guys talk about wellness, you know, but not in the way that most employers are used to hearing about it. I mean, the, the basic message is that wellness programs are, are a waste of time. Which is which completely contradicts the message coming from a lot of the HR employee benefit community. So, so give us a little background on, on this particular perspective. I mean, there are non-monetary reasons to do wellness programs. Um, uh, although the the wellness program, you know, in air quotes, that you know where I would put the money personally is in reinvigorating primary care. You know, primary care we've done everything imaginable to undermine it in this country, and so the dollars would be much better spent on like a on-site, near-site clinic or direct primary care. Yes. Um, yes. But there are non-monetary reasons to do some wellness programs, and there are a few good ones. The Validation Institute um, has identified some of these, but unfortunately, the overwhelming you know majority aren't and you know, have no ROI. The the guy that some people consider the father of the industry has put out a two million dollar challenge that he'll pay to for anybody who can prove that uh, the wellness program has an ROI. I mean, he's like on our whole you know big mission and has written books about it. But I think the key thing here is you know that we're as healthcare costs continue to go up and up and up. One of the dances it's played is the blame the victim dance and say, oh, you know your your workers are overweight, they smoke, and all that. You know, long term, that's going to cost. No, no, make no mistake. But in the the near term, what overwhelmingly drives costs? You know, a typical company, six to eight percent of the employees will drive eighty percent of the costs. These are outlier claims that are not impacted at all by wellness programs. You know, they're some of the stuff I alluded to earlier of mm-hmm. the misdiagnosis and overtreatment. And so, you know, a lot of these programs, you know, just get people who are already fit into them or, you know, lead to a lot of overtreatment. You know, a lot of these programs that, say, hospitals put on are kind of thinly veiled lead generation programs for overtreatment and overimaging and so on. Al Lewis is the guy who has put out that challenge. He's a very provocative individual. Uh, has written books on this and, you know, is is about as direct and hard-hitting as, as anyone could imagine. And I haven't heard people really challenge his data. I mean, they'll try to redirect the 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 points he makes, um, but it's his. He's put it out there and and said, "Hey, you know, I'll pay two million dollars to anybody who can prove the ROI." So he's put his money where his mouth is on that. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> I, I think um, 
you know, when it comes to to impact, you know, that I think that's where employers just need to think a little bit about, you know, dollars and effort, time and effort, you know, into those programs versus, you know, where they might otherwise be allocated to have, you know, more of an impact. And we have a lot of experience working with on-site near-site clinics. And uh, I can tell you, I think those are way more impactful than, you know, than any, any sort of, you know, traditional wellness program. Yeah. I mean, we were talking about one of your colleagues earlier, uh, Keith Robertson, that uh, he's been a huge implementer of on-site, near-site clinics have worked incredibly well. Um, so yeah, big believer in that. The next point here, you know, this is, this was one of those things where reading it, you know, um, was a learning moment for me. Um, you talked about, you know, ERISA fiduciary liability in the book. Um, and, and I don't think this is something that's on very many people's radar. So can, can you talk about what an employer's responsibility is under ERISA um, and, and explain why employers should be concerned about this? Yeah, it was actually in a meeting that I was in with some of the uh, practice leaders from some big four risk management um, players, along with the HHS secretary, Tommy Thompson, that I alluded to earlier this issue came up, you know, because ERISA, you know, is the regulatory framework that sits over retirement benefits and health benefits. You know, on the retirement benefit side, if you put your money, you know, your employee's money into Uncle Bubba's, you know, investment fund that's got high fees and terrible returns, you know, you'll get your rear sued. And there's been cases that have already gone all the way to the Supreme Court um, and unanimous on the, um, you know, on the employee's behalf. There's a few reasons why that hasn't historically historically been uh, applied as much in healthcare. You know, this risk management leader said this is the largest undisclosed risk he'd seen in his entire career. And now, you know, some of the big four are literally, you know, kind of metaphorically pushing away from the table and saying, you know, we will not sign an audit unless there's a allowance for a risk of fiduciary risks because, you know, the the fraud is just the tip of the iceberg, but it's so blatant that it's not, you know, clear that uh, it's not being carefully managed. It's it is a personal liability for the the HR manager for the outside board directors. I think this could be one of the the biggest transformative things to happen in healthcare as this is rising. I know of a number of um, cases that are in the works. These things don't come quickly, but obviously, you know, you don't want to be a target of that. And the nice thing is, if you you take care of these things, and you're not going to be exposed. But the Department of Licensing, I mean, Department of Labor, you know, makes the fiduciary duty exceptionally clear in terms of the acting on the employee's behalf. Um, and I think one of the reasons why it's really coming to a head is as high deductibles have become mainstream, uh, it may be some goofy thing like, you know, an employee saying like, geez, why did I pay, um, uh, you know, $40 for a mucus retention, you know, device, aka Kleenex, um, or, you know, a $100 toothbrush. I mean, so that's something they can actually understand. And if right. they're on the hook, they're say, wait a second, if they're not paying attention to that, and you have, you know, what I was alluding to earlier, where, you know, it's quite clear there's been a cost shift that's happened, um, because the employers haven't managed this, like they frankly manage every other item. I mean, the same 
same companies that will give employees grief about missing a $62 restaurant receipt blindly pay a six-figure claim, you know, be auto-adjudicated by their carrier. And so they're not applying appropriate fiduciary duty, you know, very clearly there. So that is a coming tidal wave. You know, it's a good excuse to, you know, push through some things that maybe there may have been resistance on before. Um, but it's such a big issue that, you know, when the first cases start to hit, I think you'll see um, a huge ripple effect on that. Yeah, I agree. And just to make sure our audience is kind of crystal clear on that. So, you know, really, if you're going to be a plan sponsor with, you know, offering medical insurance to your employees, you know, ERISA dictates that you need to be a good steward of those funds. And so, you know, I think this really, the, the risk is that people have trusted that they are getting the best deals in a PPO network. But, you know, we know, know that PPO networks are rife with price variation and, you know, an employee could be going to get an MRI that could cost $1,500, $2,500, when down the street, that same procedure might cost three or $400. And yeah. so by allowing, you know, the payment of the MRI at $1,500 or $2,000, that would basically constitute not necessarily being a good steward of the plan sponsor funds. Absolutely. You, you, nailed, you described it really well. I think that is a foreign topic to 99% of healthcare purchasers out there. And so it'll be interesting to see, you know, this, uh, become more of a discussion topic in years to come. There's two parts to your book. One, one is, is you know, highlighting some of the dysfunctional elements in the system that, that cause healthcare costs to go, go higher. And the second part is really the, the how-to. So you know, can you, let's, let's start with you know, what is the health Rosetta and uh, you know, give our audience a little bit more information about that. Yeah, essentially, you know, the name health Rosetta just came from un, you know, deciphering healthcare. You know, it's really indecipherable for a lot of people. And you know, Egyptian hieroglyphics were also indecipherable at one time and the Rosetta Stone decoded that. And so I'd been on this seven-year quest to basically find all the people who'd cracked the code and they have. And so I called the health Rosetta because they'd crack the code. And so, you know, large companies or small companies, rural, urban, private, public, you name it, they'd crack the code. Um, And so the health Rosetta is essentially a blueprint uh, for how to purchase smart. It's sort of like, you know, I don't know, Wikipedia, it's kind of open source. It's not code. It's, it's just kind of sharing best practices of what works. And, you know, I just find, I mean, some of what you alluded to where the information has not gotten out evenly and things do change. And so this is a way of like, hey, this system is so broken. How do you really take a step back and and build it from kind of the ground up? You know, things like primary care are very foundational. Um, So that's that's kind of the, the model. If you're familiar with LEAD and how that transformed the uh, built infrastructure, you know, for like building and took kind of sustainable green building practices from a fringe concept 20 years ago to a marketing advantage for developers 10 years ago to just, you know, you could hate the environment and the, the data is so clear on the ROI to build and manage buildings this way you do it. And so we're kind of following that template as LEAD certified uh, buildings and professionals like architects, Health Rosetta will certify ultimately plans. Uh, but to begin with, it's focusing in on a role we'll probably talk about later, which you're certainly familiar with, which I think is is the most underestimated important role in the entire industry, which is a benefits consultant. So that's kind of what we're doing there. Great. <clears throat> so it's 
it's it's really a, a blueprint of best practices that that have been accumulated, you know, through the process of your research and in you know looking at companies who you know haven't had you know year over year you know medical inflation you know eight nine percent and companies who have actually been able to have multiple years of, of flat you know medical inflation. Yeah, and that's usually what happens. There's a point where there's an awakening. Their costs might dip a little bit, but generally costs just flatten at that point. And then every year that goes by, they look smarter and smarter because everybody else is, has had the you know the increases that everybody's familiar with. And so if you see what's the difference between the employer like Rosen Hotels that's spending fifty five percent less per capita versus you know even Innovation Controls, a heavy manufacturer in Oklahoma, small business spending thirty percent less. It's just how long have they been doing it? Um, and so yeah, that's really of just calling those best practices. I mentioned Keith Robertson, you know, they've, you know, he's contributed stuff. I mean, all kinds of people, you know, who are really in the spirit of collaboration, sharing what's worked. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm basically a skeptical empiricist, you know, like, I just, you know, I, I'm dubious of claims, but I'll dig into it. And if they're they're real, like, that's great. We don't have to invent anything new here. It's just massively scaling the things that are already working. Great. I mean, I think there, <clears throat> there are a ton of great things happening um, out in the marketplace. And, and uh, I think this is going to be a great resource for, for people to, 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 to go to and to learn more. Um, but, you know, if, if we look at a lot of the recommendations in the second part of, of the book, um, you know, many of them involve an employer self-insuring their medical plan to be able to implement more effective controls than, you know, than what they could get by purchasing an insured off-the-shelf product, which, you know, we absolutely endorse. I want to talk about a unique little part of the country uh, called California for a second. You know, we're, we're, a little, we're a little bit different here. In our large metropolitan areas, you know, we have a lot of HMOs uh, where the underlying payment methodology is capitation with maybe a portion, you know, uh, fee for service. And so HMOs here in, in the you know, California metropolitan areas have long been more competitive than PPO products. But we still see insured HMO renewals with, you know, the major players as well as Kaiser, you know, ranging from 5 to 15% year in and year out after negotiating. So in, in your opinion, you know, how does, how does a capitated HMO model stack up against the, the prototype model that's outlined in your book? Well, I mean, I think you, you kind of answered the question that a lot of them have, you know, because it's the, some of the PPO based things have, have underperformed, uh, so much. They only have to be a little bit better to be competitive. And so it hasn't provided that, um, push for them to do the sorts of things that, outlined in the book. Now, some of what they're doing is, is certainly better than the, you know, like for example, Kaiser's primary care is better than what you're typically going to find in a, you know, normal offering. Um, but if you break down these things and some of these high cost items, the fact is the many of the best outcomes, um, aren't always there. You know, in some cases, in some areas, Kaiser is. In other areas, um, there's other places that have demonstrated superior outcomes. And so I think it's just looking at it very systematically and saying, you know, can can we do better than that? Evidence suggests that you can in many of these areas. And, and it may mean, you know, in the case of some very high cost things, you know, you may want to send people to Mayo Clinic or Virginia Mason and, and that still will pay for itself. You know, these practices really can apply in any market. 
And, you know, chapter two in the book is a pretty telling one where uh, it talks about cost inflation. The interesting thing is a resource where they crowdsource massive uh, amounts of paid claims and paid bills. And they basically found that in what I call the real market, the cash and direct contracting market, costs have been flat for five to 10 years. You know, that's very different than the other markets that I think are essentially rigged to have costs go up. Um, so that has happened all over the place. And that might mean you need to go to an ambulatory surgery center for something, or you might need to, you know, go to a particular center of excellence or go to a particular, you know, imaging center. But, you know, this is no different than everything else you do in a business. Um, you know, you move to quality, you know, healthcare, usually the second biggest cost after payroll. Once upon a time when this process got rolling, it was a small uh, number. So it sort of led us into some bad habits in terms of screwing mm-hmm. on it and made us think that, oh, you know, healthcare costs can't can be controlled or it's somehow, you know, a different beast. You know, there's, there's a lot of complex things that companies take on that supposedly aren't in their core business. I mean, look at retailers, you've got meteorologists and commodity traders and, you know, can do currency hedging and, you know, things like that. Right, um, and right. very sophisticated <laughs> transportation logistics. You know, this isn't that hard. You just need to to give it the same level of care that you would any other, you know, major item. And of course, hire the right benefits consultant. You know, as I mentioned, the 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 best ones are wildly underpaid for what they're doing. And unfortunately, the majority are frankly overpaid, you know, for for what they're doing. So you need to pick the right people to work with. I appreciate that portion of the book. Um, you know, I, I think um, you know, brokers, you know, might be portrayed I think they're portrayed a little negatively in the book. And you bring up some of the misaligned compensation incentives that exist, you know, to reinforce the status quo, which I certainly don't disagree with. But I think to accomplish much of what you need in the book, you know, a good broker consultant is needed to help with, you know, the due diligence, the plan setup, the underwriting, the data analytics, you know, as well as as communication and, and education strategies. So, you know, is it, yeah, there's is no, it, there's no, no question on that. I mean, you just, it's, it is a, it is a, there's a big change management process, there's big planning. You cannot do it. And from what I've seen without that, unless you, you know, hired one of the best in-house or something like that, which you, you know, may want to do that as as well. Um, but no, they're they're great, the good ones. Um, I see a transition, um, you know, that unfortunately most have been operating sort of like what stockbrokers operated like 20, 30 years ago. You know, the smart ones reinvented themselves as financial and wealth advisors and grabbed a lot of market share along the way. And clients really appreciated that. You know, the ones who stuck to the old ways, um, you know, went the way of the dodo bird. And so, you know, I'd say that the, the, I call them the eagles, the ones who are doing the things right, you know, and they're underpaid and the dodo birds are overpaid. So pick the right ones and, you know, have the right compensation model that really aligns interests. And uh, I just, I haven't seen it done without that. Yeah, no, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of dodo birds that are out there, but I think uh, there's more eagles that are, that are being developed and and on the rise. And I think, uh, I think that's, will hopefully contribute to better results, you know, across the board, across the country. You brought up something earlier that, you know, I didn't really have um, down here to talk about, but I want to bring it up again. Um, You know, you mentioned that 
you know, primary care has been, you know, marginalized and, you know, you know, part of the blueprint in the health Rosetta, a greater focus on, on primary care. So do you want to talk a little bit about, you know, how, you know, primary care is marginalized in the current system and how employers can sort of reinvigorate that, that portion of their healthcare plan? Uh, yeah, you bet. I mean, there's some history with how Medicare has paid for specialist care uh, versus primary care. You know, there's this thing called the AMA has this committee called the ROC, the Revenue Utilization Committee, decides what to pay. And for a long time, 27 of the 29 doctors were specialists. So guess what? Got rewarded. And so that then rippled through the market. And then the couple of that with the fee for service. Uh, unfortunately, you know, it's turned primary care in this country to milk in the back of the store. You know, it's like it's just back there to, you know, it's low margin to get you to the high margin stuff. And they just basically become kind of referral machines in that model and, you know, don't use their full capabilities. And so you have to, to totally break that model. Two big things that, that come into play when you get the right model, like with a, a great on-site near-site clinic or a great direct primary care or something like that. Number one, maybe more obvious, they are very good in the right model on prevention and, you know, long-term chronic care management and, and those sort of things. Um, and that's very important. Um, and that prevents things from, you know, growing in the future. The part that tends to get um, forgotten is that in the right model, and I'm personally experiencing this with my folks who I got into one of these great models, I put my family where my mouth is on this. Mm -hmm. And for those high cost, complex medical journeys, um, you need a Sherpa, you know, it's dangerous terrain, and they can help you navigate that dangerous terrain. And they're, you know, even if, you know, family member was a doctor, their objectivity is compromised. And so they, you know, may only be 10% of spend, but they can influence, you know, the other 90% of the spend greatly. Um, and help guide you through that um, incredibly well. And so they can let you know, hey, you know, this is this is where I would send, you know, my loved ones for, you know, this oncology or neurology procedure or whatever it might be. Um, so yeah, it's incredibly important. You know, there's no great healthcare system anywhere in the world that doesn't have a great foundation of primary care. And unfortunately, no country has undermined primary care more than the US. And so that's that's the right, that's the wrong that's got to get straightened out. Well, I, I think it's important to note that. <clears throat> You know, when you have a via a you know onsite or nearsite clinic or a direct primary care you know relationship, you know the payment structure is such that you know they're getting compensated you know, regardless of any referral patterns. I.e., that there's no misaligned incentives for them to uh, encourage unnecessary care. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I mean, the you know, a funny anecdote I got from one uh, direct primary care doc who'd made the switch. I was like, oh, why did you make the switch? And he talked about he wasn't didn't feel like he was using forty percent of his medical or only using forty percent of his medical training. And he gave an example of a patient as you know how it would have been in the old model versus what it was with him in direct primary care. And said, so, yeah, this patient of mine came in last week. She is complaining of migraines in the old model. Even though I knew it was extremely unlikely that. That she would have a tumor, I would just order an imaging, you know, because in order to hit my so-called productivity targets, 
get her in and out in seven minutes. That was one way of doing it. You know, today I had a moment to talk with her and, you know, come to find out, you know, I'm asking her, you know, if you had a new job or, you know, marital problems or whatever, is that something that's causing stress? Well, it turns out, uh, you know, this lady's mother-in-law had moved in. Um, surprise, surprise, uh-huh. that had added to some stress. And so uh, he said, <coughs> you know, let's, you know, talk to your husband, set some boundaries, you know, do a few things, blah, blah, blah. Let's see how that works for the next, you know, week or two. Um, and if you still have these problems, you know, we'll get you that imaging, you know, if not, you know, let me know, you know, sure enough, it went away and, and she didn't have to spend another half day away from work and wasting all that time going through all that rigmarole and just say, Hey doc, that worked really appreciate it. Thanks. You know? And so avoided unnecessary imaging and cost and time away from work and all that. I think a lot of the things you recommend in the book are, are great. Um, and actually a lot of those things, um, you know, we talk about here, you know, uh, with, with vendors who are doing those things on the podcast and we're implementing, you know, um, a lot of them with a lot of our clients, but I have to say, you know, progress is slow with certain employers, you know, as in my mind, inertia, is just a huge obstacle, even when there is an understanding of what, what some of the dysfunctional elements are, you know, in, in status quo purchasing. So what do you think needs to happen locally, nationally, to, to drive more momentum and quicken the pace of change? I, I'm very much a believer in the local level. And, you know, the, the, all this change is going to happen community by community. The community might be a union, it might be an employer, you know, and then it kind of spreads from there. Um, and so, yeah, the inertia is real. What I've seen work the best is when usually it's a CEO, you know, who's who's sort of put this as a priority, has the back of HR and benefits to drive this through. And then there's an aggressive communications and change management process that typically can transition a workforce in three years. You know, first year, you know, you're um, getting the early adopters, it might be new employees, it might be millennials, it might be, you know, people fed up with the current system, whatever. Um, that helps spread the word of mouth on some of these things. And, you know, you're educating the employees on how these things work and, and you know, a, a key design point, effectively the tier two plan. Um, and you default people into this new tier one plan. Good decisions are free or near free. Bad decisions are expensive. Yep. People have that experience. It makes all the difference in the world. You know, I mentioned innovation controls before. They had reduced or eliminated 97% of what their consultant calls pricing failure, which is the gap between a fair market clearing practice and the so-called PPO discount, you know, not the, the bogus charge master stuff. Yep. yep. They'd remove 97% of like, holy totally. How did they do that? And so I ended up, I was in Tulsa speaking and met with the HR director and he talked about the communication plan and then how they just walked through, you know, some scenarios. Bob's got a, you know, shoulder issue. And then they walked through a claim. Here's, you know, here's the build charges. Here's the PPO discount. Well, we now have this new program where if you go this path, oftentimes it's the same doctor, we will waive co-pays, deductibles, co-insurance. You don't have to deal with any of the paperwork. The only paperwork you'll have is a thank you survey at the end. It still saves the employer tons of money. And then you have, you know, Bob has that experience and people are like, oh my God, this is incredible. And in the case, you know, it was almost exactly two years ago when I was out there, it was kind of during high school football season. And the HR guy said, I'll tell you something that's never happened to me before. I was at a high school football game and this family came, surrounded me and gave me this big hug. 
And he's like, well, that's great, but you know, why are you doing this? And um, well, the, the husband had needed a procedure. And in the, the old plan, the out-of-pocket was a couple thousand dollars. They didn't have that. 70% of American households have less than a thousand dollars of savings. So literally that would have meant bankruptcy and no Christmas for their kids that year. But because they had this great option, um, you know, he got a great procedure done from a great surgeon, great outcome, and the kids would have Christmas. Like those stories spread, you know, and you, you know, you consciously work on spreading those in terms internally to the organization. But if there's real success people, you know, people do understand. And, you know, as one uh, consultant said, you know, the bar is so low, a snake could jump over it, you know, in terms of the mainstream of healthcare. Yeah. Um, so, you know, those are the sorts of things that having a great leader inside is helpful, but, you know, that's where you draw on a great benefits consultant who has those experiences and, and can kind of guide them on, hey, here's what you can expect over a three-year period and here's what you can do right away and here's the types of people who are receptive to it out the shoot versus, you know, maybe others are going to wait and see. Love it. I think that's, I think that's great practical advice. I mean, I think, uh, you know, uh, offering, offering a plan alongside maybe one, one traditional one. And, and, uh, you know, as the positive stories, you know, uh, you know, spread in, uh, I, I think that naturally happens. We have one case of that with, a with a group up in Santa Barbara where we did a bundled pricing arrangement and, uh, you know, you had a number of employees, um, you know, part of the biggest union, and uh, they were able to have their procedures at a center of excellence uh, with zero out-of-pocket expense, and the plan saved about sixty percent on those procedures. Yeah, and, it's amazing. Uh, and and that story, you know, spread. I actually, had a video done about it, and you know, used it at open enrollment. Um, so I think it's great practical advice that everyone on the show should, should take to heart. You're in the process of developing a movie called The Big Heist. Can you tell, tell the audience a little bit about the movie? You know, if you look at all these great societal challenges that we've tackled over the last 50 years, not that they're all done, but you know, we've been tackling, you know, whether it's civil rights, you know, climate change, energy independence, better food come from the bottom up. And then there's a moment, you know, it might be, you know, Selma, you know, for the civil rights movement, you know, and it's basically media and film play a pivotal role kind of after the movements gain some traction. It's kind of the, you know, wake up America moment. And I realized, you know, healthcare really hadn't had that. You know, as I joked, you know, I, you know, a startup is about finding a market gap and filling it. And I said, you know, I, I went looking for a market gap and found the greatest heist in American history. And so thus the, the name of the film, The Big Heist. And so the target of that, you know, really the broad population um, decided, you know, that um, we had a very successful crowdfund, you know, late last year. And uh, that ultimately led us to move our focus from a documentary to a scripted film. The good news is you're going to reach a lot more people with that and you really tell the story. The bad news is that, that takes longer and takes more money. Um, right. But that's okay. You know, more of the grassroots movement um, will mature at that point. And we want people walking out of that film, you know, you're a union leader, do X. You're a faith-based leader, do Y. You're a business owner, you know, do Z. And so there will be calls to action that, you know, will be able to draw on a lot of the success that like, you know, you shared and your counterparts have created around the country. So people are like, oh, you know, healthcare isn't like trying to solve Middle East peace, you know, which a lot of people think it's that difficult. Uh, it actually can be solved. 
And so that's really the the point of it. Awesome. So when when uh, just general time frame, you think it'll be released, and and uh, and how can people help spread the word? Um, well, you can go to bigheistmovie.com, and so you can certainly see our thoughts there and, and sign up. The release is a great question. I don't know. I mean, Brad Pitt just had a successful movie come out, and it was like ten years in the making. I was like, oh my god, I hope it's not that long. And so I was actually down in LA last week, work on it, but it, it, it'll probably be a few years realistically. Got it. Got it. Um, well, Dave. If, if there was one question that I should have asked you today, but I didn't, what would it be? It would be the opioid crisis, you know, raising the public consciousness. You know, it's the largest public health crisis since the 1918 flu pandemic, larger than polio, HIV, gun violence, automobile accidents. I mean, it's massive. There's obviously some attention at the government level, um, but this is not like those past um, public health crises, mainly government-led thing. Um, could solve it. When I, I've studied this deeply, it's, it's factoring into our plans for the film that we just talked about. And I found 11 major drivers of that opioid crisis. 10 of the 11 major drivers, the biggest enabler, uh, you know, and every, you know, addict has an enabler. Uh, employers unwittingly, uh, I'm not saying they're doing this out of malice, have contributed to that. And so I believe that this is a moment where we really have to pull together and work on this and solve these problems. And it provides the impetus. The, the silver lining here is you can't solve the opioid crisis without going a long way towards solving the bigger healthcare problem. Mm-hmm. That's the thing that the book that, you know, we're, I just published, we're treating it sort of like software, you know, version one, 1.1, 2.0. Sure. 1.1, uh, we already have um, kind of drafts done of the two chapters we're adding. One of them is on this opioid employer intersection that I think is going to be pretty jarring to people, but I hope people look at it as an opportunity, like, hey, we got to solve this. This is a big problem. You know, I quote I have in there from the manufacturer who said that this is their largest challenge for their business, not globalization, not competition. It's the opioid crisis because it's keeping them being able to hire uh, people. Um, so big, big challenge, but big opportunity. Fascinating. Fascinating. Well, I think that's, that sounds like something we should explore in a future episode here. Where can people find your book and and how can people interested in learning more about the health Rosetta get more information? Yeah. I mean, they can go to healthrosetta.org. Um, and you know, for your, your audience, if they go to healthrosetta.org slash friends, uh, they can actually get a free download of the book. We want this message to spread and, and paradoxically, the more aggressively we freely share the book, the more sales go up. Um, and so we're happy if people want to get it for free. It's really just about getting the word out there. The proceeds from the book go to the Institute, this lead like Institute. We're happy when people purchase the book as well, um, but we don't want there to be any barrier to getting that information. So hopefully your your listeners will go to that link and, and download it. And, you know, they can read all of it or read a couple chapters and it's not like a novel. You can kind of choose, you know, what chapters you want to read. Well, it's, it's a pretty quick read. I think uh, when I picked it up, I think I got through it in about two days. So quick read and, uh, you know, I'll be buying more physical copies so I can, uh, I can gift them out and send them to people because I think it's important. And I think everyone that listens to this podcast, it's in your best interest 
to go grab the book, the free ebook version or, or hard copy, because it's a great perspective on what's wrong with healthcare and, and what you personally can do to help, um, help fix things and make things better for your company, for your employees. Dave, on behalf of our listeners and myself, just really want to thank you for taking time out of your, your schedule to talk with us and, and tell us uh, about the book. I think it's been a great discussion and, and I hope our, our listeners get some value out of it. Well, really appreciate the opportunity and uh, definitely enjoyed the chat and happy to, to follow up at some point in the future if you'd like. Well, to our listeners, we hope you enjoyed this episode of Reconstructing Healthcare. Uh, if you like what you heard here, please do subscribe to the podcast and share with any of your friends and colleagues who you think would enjoy the show and find the content valuable. And with that, we'll sign off wherever you're at. We hope you have a great day and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reconstructing Healthcare. If you like what you heard here, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. If you're interested in continuing the conversation, please visit us at www.reconstructinghealthcare.com where you can access the show notes for this episode and links to the Health Rosetta's website and contact information. Be sure to check out some of the free resources on our website, including links to articles and books, as well as our Health Plan Innovator Scorecard where you can benchmark your own health plan against a plan that is truly designed to lower healthcare costs and improve value for your employees. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on the Reconstructing Healthcare Podcast.